that to, uh, I mentioned it to him after he uh, stepped down, because uh, just in case you didn't know, but the, uh, the guy up here earlier, this is Andrew Moore, he's one of the, he's one of the interns serving here, uh, wanted to make sure you knew his name, uh, I know he might look 12, but he's actually 53. So uh, it is a, a great joy to get to be a part of an amazing team of, of leaders and volunteers and all those that, that uh, on, a, on behalf of Community Reformed Church, reach out into our community and into the world, speaking the name of Jesus and bringing his presence with us everywhere we go. We have an amazing team of leaders here from pastoral staff to uh, secretarial staff, maintenance staff to worship folks, to volunteers, to consistory, to executives leaders. Every person here is a part of an amazing team and we're doing awesome stuff for the kingdom of God. And that means that you, as a part of this church, are a part of our team. You are a part of the team that cares for this world, reaching out in the name of Jesus to bring hope and light. And I'm saying that because I'm like gearing myself up. I'm I'm getting myself ready. Andrew mentioned uh, what's going on at Beaver Dam. And your support, your prayers, your encouragement is instrumental in walking through moments like these. My name is Doug Baker. I've been, I'm one of the pastors here. I've been here for a little over a year. And you as a church have called me to send me to care for others, to care for other churches, people that need help, encouragement. See, we can't figure out how to get people back on their feet. Right now, Beaver Dam is rocked. Because last week, Sunday, one of their own, 13 years old, died. The son of one of our greater deacons, Craig Vanderwoudy. And today at 1.30, we will have a funeral. And so, thank you for the ways that you have been present and encouraging and supportive. Um, It means a lot to them, and it means a lot to me. God bless you. I get to talk about God's word today. And I get to share with you another amazing story of Advent. And as we move into that time, I want you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are beautiful. You are. See, this is, we 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 don't want to say those words lightly. That's how you responded when Moses asked who he should tell people sent him. You said, I am. Well, you are. You are present. You are real. You are active. You are moving. You love. You are gracious. You are. And as we celebrate, as we move into what it means to honor Christmas, this season of Advent, we turn our eyes, we turn our attention, we focus on the one that matters, the one whose name is above all names. We focus on the glory of the name of our Father, the great God, the great I Am. Minister to us in these moments. Minister us in in, in word. Minister to us by the power of your Spirit who dwells within these souls. For the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So today is the second Sunday of Advent. 
today is <clears throat> day when we uh, continue along the path toward Christmas. Advent is this wonderful word. It is, uh, what it means is that someone important is coming. And so in anticipation, we get to talk about his story, the, the story leading up to his story. We get to talk about the stuff that we don't know, always talk about in Advent. There are so many stories, so many uh, interesting accounts, so many people all around the story of Advent. And we don't always get to them all. You know, we, we have our nativity scenes and, and there are characters in Advent that aren't even in our nativity scenes. There are characters in Advent that are in our nativity scenes and we don't talk about them very much. Uh, there are these wonderful people whose lives matter, these real people. And they're a part of what gets us to Christmas. Last week, Pastor Trent was telling you about Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and how their response made a difference. It was an Advent response, right? Today, we're not only, uh, we're, we're taking the next step. There are other characters. There are other people we want to talk about. Not just John's parents. This morning, we want to talk about another guy. This one is uh, someone who finds himself in our nativity scenes. We, we don't always talk about him. He's just an average Joe, an average normal guy, uh, hardworking. Uh, the Bible talks about him and, and really only tells us two defining characteristics of this person. When the Bible talks about him, we learn that, number one, he was a son of David. Now, what that means is, is that doesn't mean that's his dad's name, dad named David. No, what that means is, a long time before, great, 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 and then some more. Grandpa was King David. So this is what we know about him. He is a son of the king, son of David. The lineage of salvation. The lineage of the rule and reign of God's kingdom. The second thing we learn about him, the second thing the Bible tells us is important about him, is that he is a righteous man. Hang on to that one, because we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. I want to introduce to you a guy named Joseph. I told you it was an average Joe. Ah, it's a dad joke. I couldn't help it. The uh, adopted father of Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles. You can also turn to the screen up here. We're going to be reading in God's word from Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. The role of a dad, the role of a man is a very simple one. You love your family. You protect them as well as you can. And you provide for them and, and you train your children up in the ways, in the things that they need so they can make it in life. You train your children up in the ways of the Lord. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the world to do it. You don't have to be the richest. You just have to be someone who's willing to lay aside your life for someone else. Now, these are, these are characteristics. These are things. These are attributes that we find in this definition, this, this reality of someone who is considered righteous. The Bible talks about righteousness a lot. Righteousness is one of these huge concepts, big Bible word, right? Big churchy word, righteousness. Righteousness is very simply this. Are you right with God? Are you right with him? What does it mean to be righteous? The Bible doesn't really say it very clearly. There's all through scriptures constantly bombarding us in all these different places, all through God's word, attributes of God's people, things that God encourages us to live into that, that ultimately are factors of pieces of what it means to be righteous. They're peppered all through our Bibles. Old Testament, New Testament. Second Chronicles says stuff like, uh, if my people called by my name, so are you mine? Do you belong to God? Okay, if you will humble yourself, I will heal your land. Humble people are righteous. It's an attribute of righteousness. It goes on. There's, there's more. There's always more. Psalms, uh, Psalm 32 tells us that, that all who are godly pray to God while he may be found. So uh, a righteous person is a person of prayer. A righteous person is a person who is incorruptible. It says in, in Exodus 23, don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. If you're going to be God's person, if you're going to be right with God, you have to step away from what the world does and how the world does it, and you've got to be incorruptible. You're not going to just follow the crowd if... Well, if, if they all jumped off a bridge, would you? I don't know. What temperature is the water? No. Incorruptible. Judicious. Wise in how we measure life. Who we're following. God's people are judicious. John 7 says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Right judgment is a piece of righteousness. These are all, all parts of it. There are more. But these, these must be true of Joseph. He was a righteous man, right? If he's a righteous man and these are attributes of righteousness, then these must have been attributes of Joseph. He must have been humble and prayerful and incorruptible and judicious. He must have been just an, just an average guy doing his thing, living his life, experiencing what comes his way. He was living a way that labeled him, that, that God said, no, this is someone who is a model. This is someone after my heart. This is someone who is righteous in this world. He is right with me. The attributes of righteousness are his. The fruit of the Spirit would have been like, like emanating from him in waves. <laughs> Why does this matter? Why do we want to know this? What does this mean? Today, uh, more than anything, I want you to understand, I want to help you understand um, 
why this matters and what Joseph is up against as he participates in the story of Advent. So, <clears throat> come with me back in time, 2,000 years, to rural Galilee. This is an old pastor trick, right? Come with me. Let's go on a journey. We're going to go to a small town far, far away, 2,000 years ago, called Nazareth. Nazareth was located in southern Galilee. Galilee is like a province in, uh, in the Palestinian area. You see that up there uh, just northwest uh, of the Sea of Galilee. You see the big word there, Galilee. Galilee was kind of like a county. And down on the southern part of Galilee is a little town called Nazareth. Little town, rural area, mostly farmers, wilderness. In this small town, there's probably about 500 to 1,500 people. No more than that. 500 to 1,500 people. That's not a lot of people. More people go to this church. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Perspective. That means that everybody knows everybody. Everybody has a sense of who people are. Everybody knows the people that live in town. And one of those people in town that everybody knows is a young man named Joseph. Joseph lives in Nazareth. Joseph is about 25 years old. Also living in this town is a young lady by the name of Mary. And Mary would have been 13. And as was custom in that day, in that culture... Around the age of 25-ish, Joseph would have said, yeah, you know what, I think it's about time for me to get married. Hey, Dad, I think it's about time for me to get married. And so Joseph and his dad, remember, not David, but descendants. Joseph and his dad decide, all right, well, who are we going to find? All right, we got this small town. There's not very many people. I wonder what our options are. Who should we? Okay, there's Mary. How about Mary? All right, let's... Let's go ask. So this is how marriage worked. This is how engagement worked in that culture. So Joseph and his dad would, would get up there. All right, it's time to get married. And off they would go to Mary's dad's house. She was living with her dad. And they would have, hello. And, uh, you know, Mary's dad would have come out. And uh, I don't know Mary's dad's name. So, so let's, let's just go with Jim. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? How are the crops? I don't know. It's pretty dry this year. Uh, hey, uh, uh, Joseph and I were talking. Oh, yeah, yeah, Joseph. Oh, yeah, hey, Joseph. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, we were talking. Um, Joseph's thinking it's about time to get married. Oh, really? <laughs> what brings you to my door? Well, we thought that Mary would make a, a fine wife. Let's talk about that. Now was the time for negotiations. This is the contract phase of getting married back in that culture. So Joseph and his dad and Mary and her dad would come together and they would sit down together, maybe around a table, and, and so they would really negotiate, you know, and, and, and they would begin talking about, so what are the terms of the contract? One of the terms that needed to be established, one of the questions to ask is, what will Joseph pay as the bridal price? Here's, here's the father of the bride looking at the potential groom and saying, so young man, what do you think my daughter is worth? At which point the young man, any young man should say, the sun, moon, and stars, sir. 
But this isn't, this isn't actually a trick question. Um, there was uh, established in scripture long before in, uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, there's something called the bridal price. Um, this, is, this is a set dollar amount that, that God's law had established to protect young ladies in a culture where they didn't have a lot of power. And so, uh, established way back in the Old Testament is this bridal price. And, and what the father of the bride is asking is, how much of the bridal price can you come up with? If you're poor, you might not be able to come up with all of it. The established bridal price is 50 shekels of silver. This is what a shekel looks like. There they are. 50 shekels of silver, each of these weighing about a half an ounce of, uh, of silver. This would have, if you're going with modern today's prices for silver, you're talking about $375. That's pretty flattering, isn't it, ladies? <laughs> Is Joseph able to come up with 50? And so the negotiation would begin. Well, we're really poor. We're, you know, maybe we can come up with like 30. Well, what about 45? How about 37? 40? Uh, maybe 35? How about 52? Back and forth it goes until they figure out what can Joseph afford. All right, so now we understand what the bride price is going to be paid. Let's say Joseph is able to. He's been saving up because he's kind of had in mind that he wanted to get married. He's already got a little bit in the bank, so he's, he's going to be able to come up with all 50. So we know 50 is it. He's going to bring the bride price. He's got to build a home onto his father's house and all that kind of stuff. But what is she going to bring as well? See, there's also the bridal estate. And not only does Joseph have to bring the bride price, but she has to bring her estate. What is her estate? Well, she might have linens and, and certain clothing. She might have some household wares. If, if they're somewhat wealthy, she might even come with servants. And if, if the family's really well off, she could come with land. Ooh, land. That's, 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 that's important. Guys want to marry up. <laughs> And so the negotiation continues. There they sit and they talk about uh, what do the groom bring? What do the bride bring? And once they get it all set, once they've got everything kind of figured out, that's when it is, it's been established. The contract, the terms of the contract has been established. And now all eyes in the room swing to Mary. And now is when the question is asked that you'd think should be asked early on, Mary, do you want to wed this young man? What do you think Mary said? See, that's a trick question. We know she said yes. <laughs> she said yes. That means as of this moment, the contract has been, it's locked in. The contract is signed. She said yes. He said yes. The terms are set. They are now legally wed. In that culture, this is the moment. This is the moment when they're legally wed. It's kind of like how we do it. I mean, we have the ceremony. We do all that. But there's always that moment right at the end, right? You, you, got, the, you got the couple standing up with the pastor. And he's like, you know, do you, do you? And yes, and yes. And, and you go, all right, now by the power vested in me, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, because of, through the giving of rings and the holding of hands and the sharing of vows, I now pronounce you man and wife in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may the Lord bless you and keep you, protect you, and encourage you all the days of your life. I now pronounce to you, oh, and everybody's like, yeah. And then you have the moment, right? Everybody goes down and they run over here because they've got to have the pictures. And then you got the paper and then everybody's like, sign, the bride signs, the groom signs, the witnesses sign. And then the pastor comes in. And, 
official. They call that on the, on the thing, officiant. We're very official. <laughs> you can tell by how gussy I am. And there it is. It's a legal reality now. They're married. They're husband and wife. It's not different. It's not different back then when the contract was signed. They're married. Married. Legally. They are together. They're husband and wife. Almost. The, 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 the things worked a little bit differently back then. There were three steps to the process of getting married back then. Step number one is the contract where everything's decided and everybody signs off. Step number two is consummation and all that that means. Step number three is celebration. This is how it worked. You go in, you say, I want to marry your, your daughter, okay, and everybody's negotiating, you sign the contract. And then for about a year, the groom would go off and get things ready. He's got to build up the money. He's got to build up the shekels. He's got to build a, a room onto his father's house. Didn't know that part, did you? Yes, he's got to make a place for her. Back in that culture, everybody went and lived with the groom's parents in their compound. It was like a compound. Here, I got a, I've got a picture for you. This is a, a courtyard of a, of a typical, this is kind of a mock-up of what a first century house would look like. So in the courtyard there, you see that, that, uh, that little door there, the dark door on the, on the main floor there. That's the, that's the uh, stables. That's where the animals lived. That's where the animals lived. Inside the house. Upstairs, go up the stairs, right above where the animals lived, because we know all smells go down. <laughs> That's where the main family lived. This is the outside courtyard. There's an inside and outside living space. There's like a porch area. You do a lot of your living there. It's a warm climate, so you do a lot of stuff outside. There's a nice place inside where you can sleep and, and you can hang out as a family. This is, this is where people live. Now, on the right, you see an open doorway. That doorway on the right is kind of the access to the outside. This is how you get out to the street, so you can head on off to work or wherever you need to go. On the left, you see another doorway. That is probably a doorway of the families that uh, the, the sons and their spouses built onto the house. So you'd have the central courtyard with as many of those kind of doors off of that courtyard as you had sons and their wives. It could be quite a brood. You imagine that and like 20 grandkids and donkeys and sheep and all kinds of stuff. And so Joseph, he's been living with mom and dad in the upper room there. He's, he's got to prepare a place for his bride. He's got to make a room for her on his father's house. And so the, the contract time, the engagement, the, 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 the time where they are technically married, but they don't get to be together is the time of preparation as he goes off to prepare a place for her. Please tell me, please tell me, please tell me that as I say that, you are going, there is that there's got to be, I think there's a place in the Bible where somebody says something like that. Jesus says something like that in, in John 14. Tell me if these words sound familiar. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Tell me that resonates. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being married. Why do you think the church is called the bride of Christ? We are in anticipation. We're a people living in this first phase of being wed 
waiting for our Savior to return, waiting for our groom. This is the phase where we meet Joseph and Mary. She's waiting for her groom. He's getting things prepared. First step is contract. Usually took a year, took a year a little bit more. After the contract is, is done, he's got the shackles, he's got the room. He goes off and he runs to her father's house to, uh, to go get her. He go get his bride. He and a whole big group of people run off and they get to her dad's house and they consummate their marriage right there. And then everybody's like, all right, woohoo, we're going to celebrate. They gather up all her stuff and they run back to his father's house. They drop it off in the room and then it's reception time. There's cake and dancing and, and maybe cake, I don't know. Raisin cakes, sure. This is marriage in the first century. This is what Joseph and Mary are in the middle of this waiting time in the midst of an amazing, powerful, anticipatory time in the middle of him getting everything prepared, in the middle of all this hard work. Joseph gets some devastating news. He's been working hard. He's been diligent. He's been getting the place for his bride prepared. He's making sure that he has the bride price so he can go get her. He's working diligently to get his contractual arrangements fulfilled. When he gets some terrible news, guess who's pregnant? Now, you're not talking about a man who's thinking, oh no, my fiance. No, no. You're talking about a man who just found out that his wife is going to have a baby. And he knows where he has been and he knows where he has not been. And I, I, I can't even fathom how he feels. I mean, this, this is real life, right? This, is, this really happens. People are people. And we have hopes and we have dreams. And we, 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 we want great things and we do all we can to make the best of the simple life that we have. And here's this real man and this real woman and they're just doing their best. And now this, this I can't imagine he was anything but furious. What he felt, what he probably wanted to say to her, but this is, now this is where, this is where the fact that he was a righteous man matters. Because when you're right with God and you want to be right with God and you choose to be right with God and this is the defining reality of your life, you do what is right with God even when life throws you the most insane curveballs ever. When it just, just lands on you with both feet and stomps on you for a while. You still walk with integrity, you still walk with honor. And it costs everything. 
And here is this man choosing to be righteous in the middle of this, choosing to be humble and prayerful and, and, and a man of honor and integrity, incorruptible and judicious in his actions. The Bible tells us because he was a righteous man, because he loved his wife and he will protect his wife and he will provide for his wife in a small town where there are no secrets, he decides he will do his best in a situation where he, he just cannot live with her betrayal. He will do his best to honor and protect her. And he, he can't think of another way out of it than just to divorce and move on with life, but he's going to do it in such a way that keeps her from being embarrassed, that protects her dignity because he is a righteous man and he loves her. Because that's what righteous people do. Ooh, this would be an intense story, right? I'm like breaking a sweat here thinking about it. I mean, just crazy, but it's not over. So this, is, this is the beauty of it. When righteousness is an attribute of God's people, God has a way of speaking in and doing stuff in ways that just boggle our minds and leading to a life we could have never expected. Suddenly, the, as he's anticipating, as he is preparing to take this course of action, God sends an angel and he speaks to his servant, Joseph. Son of David, pay attention. I want you to take Mary home to be your wife. I want you to do this because it's right. I want you to do this because she has not betrayed you. She has not betrayed you. The, the child that is in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will be a savior to his people. You're going to be a part of a great plan, and I'm going to have you take care of this child, I'm going to have you name him and raise him and guard him and encourage him. You're going to be a part of a miracle. She has not corrupted your union. She has not betrayed you. I know you're a righteous man. I want you to do something that is completely crazy. I want you to... I want you to do something that is, just defies human knowledge. I want you to do something that doesn't make any sense when it comes to people because everybody knows where babies come from. I'm telling you something different. Will you trust me? And Joseph is a righteous man. And he says, okay. And because he walked in righteousness, it makes all the difference no matter what it was going to cost him, this average Joe chose to be the person that God was calling him to be. This one average guy, there are no words of his recorded in all the Bible. We don't hear any words from his mouth, but his entire life testifies to the amazing power of God. Echoes through eternity. His life echoes righteousness and he joins Mary as an avenue by which Jesus enters the world. Because that's what righteousness does. You want to know the power of righteousness? It's not just, I choose righteousness, I'm right with God, yay, that's the end of it. Righteousness has a, a wonderful payoff. There's a side effect to being a righteous person, choosing righteousness every day. You become, as a, as a person choosing righteousness, you become the avenue through which Jesus Christ comes into the world. 
Even today, Advent. Advent is, you know, someone important is coming. Well, you know what? It's not just a season way back then, 2,000 years ago. It's not just a season we celebrate around Christmas. Every single day is Advent if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you choose to walk in righteousness. Every day. When you walk into a room as a person choosing righteousness, choosing to be right with God every day, when you come in, somebody important, somebody greater has entered that room with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is there. And when people see you, they see him. And they glorify God their Father. You, you, can have an Advent life. You can be a gift to the world. You can make a difference for eternity in people's lives as you testify just by walking in and being righteous. You bear witness through word and deed that someone greater is here. Just like it says, just like it's promised in Isaiah, promised in another part of Matthew. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. To us, a child is born. Through us, a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Hallelujah. And praise be to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, your glory is... Your glory is what we want. Your will is what we seek. And your presence is what we want to bring. Be in us, your people, and encourage us in righteousness so that every day as we encounter anything and everything, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, we get to be a light shining the presence of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, Father. May our lives be lives of praise and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. I'm talking about pursuing righteousness. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. If you think for one minute that Joseph was perfect, <laughs> it's not about being perfect. It's about pursuing righteousness and being all that God asks us to be as good as we can. That changes the world. It's what Joseph did. It's what we can do. So go from here in the power and the strength, the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that he has equipped you to do all that he asks you to. And he can change the world through you. And all of God's people said, amen. Go in peace.